Thank you for listening to audio from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church or our Sunday services, please visit gccugene.org. Judges is one of the most violent and bloody books in the Bible. It is not a moral manual or a story about role models, but rather a tragic narrative about Israel's moral corruption and God's continued commitment to saving his people. The tragedy here lies in the overwhelming corruption and depravity of our human condition. Despite being loved and sought after by the king of all kings, Israel's cycle of rebellion remains unbroken. Israel rebels, God allows them to be conquered and oppressed. Israel cries out and repents, God sends a judge to deliver them. There would be an era of peace, but eventually Israel would sin and the cycle would start over. This is the rhythm of judges. God has called his people to be a holy people. And instead of remaining faithful to the law and showing all the other nations who God is and what he is like, they become no different from those who dishonor God. They did what was right in their own eyes. As time goes on, these judges, or rulers of the people, become more and more corrupt. When we define what is good, we hit rock bottom. The book ends with a phrase that is repeated four times. In those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. They have no king. Nobody to unite them and bring them out of their cycle of corruption. They need to be rescued. They need a king who can rescue them from themselves. The book of Judges not only points to King David, but points to our ultimate king. The one who can rescue us fully, Jesus. Good morning and welcome to Gospel Community Church. For those of you guys joining online, as Brad said, we're honored that you can join us this morning online. For those of you guys in person, it's good to see you guys. It's good to be back. I just came off of a two-week sabbatical, so it's good to be back this morning. First, I want to thank Ronnie and Wally and, and our entire church family and staff for allowing me to have that time. And over the next few months, uh, that's what I'm going to do over April, May, and June. So someone asked how long it's going to go for. I said forever. And then I clarified and just told them it's going to be for the next couple months. The long story short is uh, we moved here about five and a half years ago to plant Gospel Community Church. And uh, over that time, just seeing the need, especially recently, for a little bit of a break. So I'm thankful for our church family, for all of you guys, for the support to be able to have that. So uh, what I would ask you guys to do is keep your Bibles closed for a minute. And don't turn to the book of Judges, and I'll explain why. So we purposely spelt it wrong and said, trust me, I know I'm right for this reason is this is what happens when the creation says to the creator, let me make my own rules, let me do things the way I want, and trust me, I know what's right. We see moral corruption, we see moral failure, we see society just start to just go and tank. And so that's what the book of Judges is about. It's the cycle. So also good job to Becca and uh, Nathan for putting the video together. Thankful for that. Yeah, you can clap for that. All right, with that, here's what I would ask, is we are not reading an epistle, we are not reading uh, wisdom literature, we're reading a narrative. 
And so if you're going to read a narrative, you need to read it like a narrative. You also need to listen to it like a narrative. And so what we would need to understand from this story today is that for the, the Jewish people that had this story passed down to them, yes, it was passed down on a scroll, but more often it was told just orally. And, and this is a story that was told and communicated in story form to the nation of Israel and to their children. This is a story with a ton of satire in it. This is a story with a ton of humor in it. What it is, is a narrative. So what I'm asking you to do is, is try to take off our 21st century lens to try to put ourselves back into what it would have been like for the Israelites at that time to read this story. Remember, they're in the land of Canaan, as Hunter said. There's been a lot of darkness, a lot of frustration in the land of Canaan. A lot of that they've brought on themselves. But as God delivers them, they, they get to tell stories like this that are actually humorous stories. And so remember, you're trying to listen as though you were an Israelite coming out of this and, and, and coming into the land of Canaan and watching God deliver time and time again. So with that, I'm just going to read the story like a librarian and a library, like a, a, a father or a mother telling their kids a bedtime story. Just, just listen to the story. Try, try to be an intentional listener right now as I read it. And just take it in. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites and went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palm. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubic in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man. And, and when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded, silence. And all his attendants went out from his presence. And Ehud came to him and was sitting alone in the cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat. And Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade, and fat closed over the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. Then Ehud went out into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. When he had gone, the servants came, and when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he is relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. And they waited till they were embarrassed. But when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them, and there lay their Lord dead on the floor. Ehud escaped while they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Syria. When he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. Then the Lord of Israel went down with him from the hill country as he was their leader. And he said to them, follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. They went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men, not a man escaped. 
So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest 80 years. This is in our Bibles. I've never met the person who was like, I'm going to get a tattoo of that. I'm going to slap that one on me. Ehud stabbing a guy, a fat man, leaving it in there, and dung everywhere. Like, that's in our Bible. Our Bibles are awesome. They're exciting. I think oftentimes we think that uh, God is, is boring and Jesus is ultra, just, just, I mean, ultra serious. Our Bible has tremendous humor and satire. God is exciting. We get to stories like this. It's like, wow, what in the world do we do with that? Like, I've never heard of this getting read in the, the, the kids program or any kids program. It's like we, we bypass this one. Like, I've never had my daughters come home and say, we learned about Ehud today. What a story. But this is in our Bible, and it's in our Bible for a reason. It's not like God's like, just throw this one in there. It's in there for purpose. And here's the main point today, that we are saved by deeds, death, and declaration. Okay? That's our main point, that we are saved by deeds, death, and declaration. I'll explain that as we move on. But, but I also want to give you guys some structure for where we're going today in the text, okay? I received a challenge from Ronnie and Nicole to make sure that I don't bypass verses 21 and 22. So I took that challenge to heart, okay? Specifically the dung passage. And so I'm going to go off that from my outline, okay? Verses 12 through 14, we're going to look at this. 12 through 14 is that sin will make you crap out. 17 through 23 we're going to look at this, that God is among the dung. And then the final verses, so, so mature, I hear the snickers, uh, is 26 through 30s. Get off the toilet and in the trenches, okay? So that's where we're going. That's our outline. I'm not trying to be uh, edgy to, to, to say crap. I just don't think poop has the punch I'm looking for, okay? So that's where we're going. God saves through crazy means, crazy times, in really crappy situations. That's the reality. So in, in just a moment, I'm going to, to pray. But I'll say this first, is I don't do well with messes. I don't. And I especially don't do well with poop. I don't. I, something happens to me when messes happens. My wife can tell you it's like my body shuts down. I either just become like in a state of paralysis or I just leave the situation. Here's a picture of me in 2017 holding my daughter Brooks. You cannot see it here, and I'm not going to get a red pointer to highlight where it's at because it'd be awkward, but there is poop all over my hands, there's poop seeping out of her, and there's poop all over my shorts from my daughter Brooks. In this moment, I am, I am horrified. I am grossed out. I don't know what to do with myself. And again, these are the moments where I just want to be like Enoch or Elijah. I'm like, Lord, take me. Like right now, I don't know what to do. I, I, I'm just grossed out. My wife can tell you, seriously, I don't know what to do with messes. If someone breaks their arm, gets a cut, I feel like I'm pretty good in that. But when it comes to like poop and stuff like this, I'm, I'm just not good with that. But the reality is, is many of us think that's how God looks at us and treats us. Whenever we're in messes, whenever we've created the messes in our lives, and that's God's response to us. I hope from the passage in the text today that we can see that in the most horrific, 
crappiest situations, like we see here in this passage today, that God moves and works in the midst of those to deliver his children. Let's pray. Father, you are faithful, you are good, and you live and dwell among us, God. Through your spirit, you have sealed us. Through your son, you have delivered us. And Father, through your word, you, you, you encourage us, you strengthen us. Thank you for passages like this, God, that show us that you live and operate in the dark places of life, God, in the places most people run from, in the places that we run from. God, you are there in the midst. So we love you, we praise you, we ask that you would speak to us today, that you would encourage us today, that you would lead us today. Through your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I first want to cover just a little bit of the backstory that's got us here, real quick, is the people were led up to the land of Canaan by Moses. Moses got them close, but did not take them in. A man named Joshua, whose name means Yeshua, brought them into the promised land. We understand that Moses represents the law. Joshua does not. In the same way, we can't get into a right relationship with God by our adherence to the law. In, in the same way, they were not going to come into the promised land through Moses, through the law, but through Joshua, Yeshua. That's how we come into relationship with God. And so they, they are now in the land of Canaan, and they were called to go in, and they were called to take out the people of Canaan. People have a hard time with that, but what it symbolizes is this, is that they're called to go in and, and, and wipe out the, uh, the sin in the land. Because eventually what happens is you can either get rid of sin in your life or you can start to adopt the sinful patterns into your life. And we see that's what they do whenever they are in this land. There's, there's some struggles that people have with narratives, and I want to address those. The, the secular struggles are this, is it looks like God is condoning like radical death and, and, and this story where this guy is stabbing someone with a dagger. And what we, what we need to understand with narrative is that narrative is describing events. It is telling a story. When you read Genesis, what you actually see through the narrative is there's some really horrific things that happen, but it doesn't say God is condoning this behavior. He's supporting it. In fact, you see that when man takes things on their own and decides to run their own path, things go out, just things go very poorly. So we see Abraham do this. We see time and time. Jacob does this and things go poorly. So we need to understand narrative is describing something that's happened in time, okay? Next, what we also need to understand is that narratives actually do teach us lessons because <clears throat> sometimes in liberal Christianity, what we can do is just say this is all allegory, that the dagger was just, a, um, was just the word of God, there's a double-edged sword and stuff like that because we want to get away from the blood and the mess and, and all that's there. We actually learn through narratives. And, and, and though they're not prescriptive saying, go and do this, we can actually learn a lot from them and from what they're communicating. So with that, we've read through it. Let's look at verses 12 through 14, remembering that we are saved by deeds and death and declaration. So 12 through 14, what we have is this, is the nation of Israel starts their cycle, the cycle that we see over and over and over again in Judges. As we saw in the video, we are starting to see it now. They live in this cyclical pattern. What they do is they sin, they rebel against God, and then they cry out to God. God sends a judge, which is a leader, and then the leader helps deliver them and restore them. So that's what we're seeing. 
Ronnie preached last week on Othniel, and then this week we pick up on Ehud, and what we see is that the people of Israel, after Othniel died, started to do again what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And so our first section that sin will make you crap out is this, is notice at verse 14, look here in the text with me, verse 14 says, and the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years, 18 years. Sin will turn you hardened and it'll turn you blind. Imagine that. They, they, they are so willing to be overran by the Canaanite kings. Not just one of them, but actually three of them. Because their sin has made them stubborn, and it's made them hardened, and it's made them blind. Actually, how good it is to be in God and, uh, with God and in his presence. So sin is going to make a mess of your life by hardening you and blinding you. What we see here is we see that God gives them over to this king, and not just this king, but multiple kings. God doesn't do this as a flippant, just angry God. We have to remember what Exodus 34, 6 says, is that God is abounding in steadfast mercy. He's slow to anger. So this isn't just an angry God who's, who, who's done with this, and now he's responding out of his just anger and his frustration with them, just wanting to discipline them. God's, love, or God's discipline here, turning them over, is done in love. In fact, if, if you see church discipline done properly inside of the church, it's one of the greatest gifts of membership inside of the church is church discipline, though it might not sound like it. If, if you see this done properly, it's done from a motivation of love. And its purpose is restoration. You discipline someone out of love because they're running after their sin. And you see Paul do this. You see the Corinthians do this. You, you, you see them done. And even Paul says, I'm going to turn them over to Satan. Again, this is driven by a motivation of love. When you love someone, you discipline them. What Paul is saying is, I'm going to turn them over to their sin and let them see the sin they're chasing is an empty well that will run dry. It's not going to satisfy them. It's not going to fulfill them. And sometimes, like the story in the prodigal son, you turn people over to their sin until they end up in the pig slop and see the mess that sin has created in their lives. That's the most loving thing you can do because they'll end up in a desert, parched, and starved because sin can only do one thing overpromise and under deliver it is a cruel master it will make you crap out this is why paul talks about uh, multiple times in in first timothy 1 19 and in first timothy 4 9 paul talks about our conscience becoming seared one of the first things that starts to happen whenever you start to walk in sin is you have this conscience and your conscience goes i know there's something wrong with this but I'm going to quiet it. And before too long, that voice and the sensitivity of the spirit is just a distant fade in the background that you can hardly hear. And, and let's be real. For some of us in here this morning or listening online, that's the reality. Sin moves in one direction, a path towards destruction. It's like a snowball. It builds momentum until it destroys everything in its path. That's what's going on here. The most loving thing that God can do is turn them over and say, hey, if this is what you want, instead of me in my presence, I'm going to let you have it and see how empty it is. That's what he does. And here, here, here's, here's the truth. You can run a while on sin, but you will slow down. Kind of like putting bad gas bad fuel into a car. The car will run for a little while before it completely just craps out. And you will be able to run and sustain for a little bit before that actually happens to you. And, and here's, here's the reason why. You can't live in consistent 
with the Spirit of God living inside of you. You can't live inconsistent with the Spirit of God living inside of you. This, the nation of Israel was, was called to be a light to the people around them. They were living inconsistent, which makes it really confusing to the people of Canaan. They're like, you, you're, you're saying that you're a worshiper of Yahweh, you look like us. Imagine this. Imagine going to a dentist and you sit down in the chair at the dentist's office and you look up and the dentist, he has like half his teeth and the other half are rotted. And he's like, let's get to work. What are you going to do? You're going to be like, I'm sensing some inconsistencies here. This is a true story. My dad went to the doctor once and, and, and a very overweight doctor told my dad, who was also overweight, he was like, you need to lose some weight. And my dad said this, he's like, you're one to talk. Because in my dad's eyes, he's like, I'm feeling the inconsistency here. <laughs> like, it would also be like me going in to my, my physical therapist, David Campbell, best in town, shameless plug right there. Going to him to, 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 to work on mobility, to get restored, and I walk in and he's hunched over and can hardly walk or move. I'm like, yeah, mm, you seem like the right guy. We would go, there's a lot of inconsistencies here. And so when the people of God live so inconsistent amongst culture, it makes people go, I don't know. But here, 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 here's, here's the greater problem and how sin will make you crap out is it'll lead to a joyless restlessness inside of you. It will. I've never met the person who's having an affair on their spouse say that at the end of it, during it or anything like that, that they had a ton of joy in their life. They will say their soul was at war. They were restless. There was unease. There was a lack of joy. There was no peace. And when anytime we sin and live in sin and rebellion against God, what we are doing in that moment is having an affair against our creator. The reason why you can't have joy is you are sealed as a child of God with the spirit of God, okay? That means the spirit of God, you don't take possession of it. It comes in and takes possession of you and of your life. You're sealed with it. It's not like it just slips in and out of your life. It, God, listen, God lives inside of you. That's a reality, that God himself lives inside of us. And when we sin, we grieve God and the spirit of God that lives inside of us. You can't live a joyous life when you're constantly grieving the God that lives inside of you. It won't work. This morning is going to be like a big punch up front, okay? So hang in there with me. It won't work. Not only will you not have joy, you will be restless because that's what sin does. It creates restlessness. Now, you can live like this if the Spirit of God doesn't live inside of you. But when the Spirit of God lives inside of you, you will be joyless and you will be restless because you're living a way that goes inconsistent with the God who's living inside of you. It, it, it's not our job just to go around rebuking Christians. It's actually our job as Christians to go around saying, this is who you are. You're actually a child of God who's made holy and, and, and your identity is now in Christ. I want to see you live into that because you're actually going to have more freedom by living into that. And you can come along and say, all sin's going to do is just make you crap out. Which is why Paul says, take every thought, Captain. He doesn't say after seven or eight of them are rolled and take every thought captive. Thoughts of being judgmental. Whatever they are, we are called to take those thoughts captive. Sin is a crappy master. It can only overpromise and underdeliver. And that's why time and time again, when we choose to walk and live in sin, we don't walk away as Ronnie was saying last week going, 
oh, that was it. I've never met the drunk person on the toilet the next day that was like, mm, I got you, God. That was worth it. There's a reason. It'll suck the joy out of your life. So in, in a lot of ways, we can just be objective and go, is, is my life filled with joy? Maybe not. Is one of the reasons maybe that it's not is because I'm living and walking in a way that goes inconsistent with the God that lives inside of me. I like what D.A. Carson says. I have a quote for you guys. He says, people do not drift toward holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate toward Godliness, prayer, obedience to scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. We drift toward compromise and call it tolerance. We drift towards disobedience and call it freedom. We drift toward superstition and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of, uh, of lost self-control and call it relaxation. We slouch toward prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we have escaped legalism. We slide towards godlessness and convince ourselves we have been liberated. Like a fish swimming upriver, you'll get exhausted. You see, I, ice skates work great in ice hockey. But if you wear ice skates out on a football field, they're not going to work well. In the same way, when God gives you the full measure of his love and his grace and his holiness, and you choose to live another way, it's like wearing the wrong uniform. It's like wearing the wrong stuff that goes with that sport. You can't live and operate fully and freely. It'll make you crap out. And so God did the most loving thing he could do to Israel. And God does this, the most loving thing he can do to his children. He will discipline them like a good father who doesn't want his kids to run towards death. Then we see in verses 15 through 23 that God lives among the dumb, okay? What we are introduced to in verse 15 is our deliverer. Look here with me. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. I love this. And the Lord raised up for them a deliverer. It's like God is just ready. Like turn, repent, I'm ready. It's the same thing in the prodigal son, Luke 15. When we see the son coming home, the father sprints out to me. And it's like he was waiting. Like this is a God who's waiting with anticipation for its hearts, for the children, his children to turn back toward him. And so he raises up a deliverer, Ehud. That's how you say it. Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. Okay, so here's what we know. There's this guy named Ehud. He's a left-handed man from the tribe of Benjamin. So let's do a little history here. So the tribe of Benjamin is one of the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. They, uh, uh, Benjamin was the youngest of Jacob's children. Benjamin was the full brother of Joseph. And we see actually in the story of Joseph when he's sold into slavery that Joseph does everything that he can to save and protect Benjamin. And then Benjamin, one day, his tribe and his great, 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 great grandson, Ehud, is going to again save the nation of Israel. I think that's important for this reason. We often live our lives as though the only the here and now matters. But actually, what Jacob did then, what Joseph did then, and also what Benjamin did then mattered because now years and years and years later, this ancestor, this, this grandson of his is now stepping in. And I think we need to realize that, that we don't just need to think about our decisions today. We need to think about how our decisions and how we live our life will actually, actually affect our 
grandchildren, our great-grandchildren, and on down the line. So this is, like I said, Jacob's youngest son, Benjamin. This is on down the line, one of his grandsons. He's also from the tribe of Benjamin. Here's what we know about the Benjaminites. They are left-handed men. That's irony because the name Benjamin means son of the right hand. So we already are just introduced to irony in the story. But they're fierce warriors. The Benjaminites are fierce, fierce warriors. We see later in the book of Judges that the nation of Israel goes to war against the tribe of Benjamin. Israel comes out with 400 soldiers. Benjamin, they got a 15th of that. And they have 700 of their best men that says they can sling a stone and knock the hair off of someone's head. These guys are fierce. They are trained. People want to know, were they left-handed by nature or nurture? And most commentators will say and scholars that it's probably from both. They started to breed them this way, but then they nurtured them to be this way. Why? Because when you're a left-handed pitcher, you throw off most of your batters in baseball. If you think about a curveball, from a right-handed pitcher, most curveballs are going to break away from you. When a left-handed pitcher steps in, all of a sudden the ball is coming towards you whenever it breaks on a curveball. If you think about fighting, I know this from fighting, from, 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 from boxing and from MMA, the, the people you don't want to fight are left-handed southpaws. Why? Because you spend the majority of your career training traditional fighters that all punch mostly with their right hand. When you mix that up, it really throws you off. It gives you a huge advantage in sports and in battle. And so they're training their guys like this. You know, uh, they have 700 guys against uh, Israel's 400,000, and they whooped their tails at the end of this um, book that we'll see. This is, I don't know if you've ever seen 300. I'm not recommending it from the pulpit, but if you have seen it, you have Leonidas. He chose. 300 men to go to war against King Xerxes, right? And then on their way to war, they run into the Akkadian army, which, which is another part of Greece. And the, uh, the commander of the Akkadian army looks at Leonidas and he's like, I thought you were, I th I thought you were gonna match our commitment here and you were gonna bring some soldiers. And Leonidas looks at him and he goes, oh, you did, huh? And he starts pointing to some of his soldiers. And if you remember what happens, he points to one of his soldiers and he goes, what do you do? And the one guy goes, I'm a sculptor. And, and, and then he points to another one, and, he, and, and he's like, uh, what do you do? He's like, I'm a potter. And then he points to another one, and he goes, blacksmith. And then he looks at his arm, and he goes, Spartans, what is your profession? And they just scream three times in a really intense way. He looks back at the king and says this, it looks like I brought more soldiers to this war than you have. This is the tribe of Benjamin. They are like the 300. They are fierce, ferocious warriors, as we'll see throughout the Bible. Whenever they come up, they accompany David in First Chronicles. These are the guys you want by your side, okay? So that's who they are. That's, that's who Ehud is. That's the tribe he comes from. These guys are feroce. <laughs> ferocious. It's a new word. hasn't made it out yet. <clears throat> it's cool to shorten everything, so I've heard. <clears throat> so here's what Israel does. They cook up this great plan. They're like, most scholars think that it's some form of food because it says in the text that he's a fat man. So he idolized food. What do we know about Eglon, their king? We know that he's fat. How do we know this? We know this from verse 17 that says, now Eglon was a very fat man. If that offends you, just remember, I'm reading the text. It also says in verse 22 that he was fat. And when he pushed the dagger in, that the fat closed in over it. What is this telling us? Kings were supposed to be with their people. Kings were supposed to fight for their people. 
Look at David. David was a man after God's heart. He's a man after my heart. Guy writes poetry up on a hill while playing a harp. Next thing you know, he's striking down Goliath and chopping off his head. Like, that's a pretty cool guy, right? That, that's a good king. This king, not a good king. Kings weren't supposed to be lazy. But this man was lazy. He was not a man for the people. And so they played off his weaknesses and played off his idols. And so they made a tribute, which most scholars believe was likely some form of food to go in and, and to deliver it to him. And so that's what they do. They walk in there. They're like, we got a present for you. And he's like, awesome. And, and so they deliver it to him. It doesn't get Ehud close enough to the king. So he's like, oh, okay, um, I, have a, I have a secret message for you. Got a secret message. And the king's like, all right, silence. Everyone get out, okay? And, and, and then so he, he makes his move closer. Read with me because the story, if you read it, what you'll notice happens shifts. It's in a slow motion. So it's telling the story, telling of Israel's trickery of what they're doing. And then in 21, it shifts in a slow motion. Watch this. And, he, and Ehud reached with his left hand, right? It's giving you all the details. He took the sword from his right thigh and thrust it into his belly. Pause. Why? How did he get in? Most soldiers were right-handed and they would put their sword on their left thigh and they would reach across and pull it out like this. Since he was left-handed and that's how he fought he just put his sword over on this side and they weren't going to check this side because the majority of people were right-handed so they put their swords on their left thigh so he was able to slip in and he was very fluid with using his sword with his left hand that's how he gets in okay so that's what happens 21 look at 22 and the hilt also went in after the blade and the fat closed over the blade for whatever purpose that's there for he did not pull the sword out of the belly and the dung came out Okay, then Ehud went out into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked. Okay, what do we have? Again, if you are a child that belongs to the nation of Israel and hears this story later on, every scholar unanimously said this, that most people preach this and, and commentate on it too seriously because it's actually meant to be satire and, and, and it's meant to be humorous. And they would have read it with, with, with a tremendous humor, like, look at, look at the nation of Israel. Look at Ehud, he's going in and, and, and he goes in and he offers this present. Next thing you know, he's pulling this dagger out that's about 18 inches long and he stabs the king with it. Dung goes everywhere and the nation of Israel is delivered. And they're like, this is a great story. They would tell this story. They, they would love this story. We try to get away from this story, but you know what this story actually does? Is it shows us that God lives among the dumb. In other words, this really is, full pun intended, a really crappy situation here. But much like the picture I showed you guys earlier, God lives and abides in the crappiness in our lives. Right now, I'm confident that there's people that are in here listening online that are just in a crappy spot. Maybe you are not where you thought you would be. Maybe your marriage is not where you thought it'd be. Maybe you thought you would have a family by now, a different career by now. You would be at a different spot by now. Maybe you didn't think that your loved one would be struggling and battling with cancer. Maybe you didn't know about the move that was coming up. Maybe there's all these things that can contribute to being in a really crappy situation in life. And it's stories like this that give us hope. 
They give me hope, they give us hope because they show us that God has a plan, moves and works and lives among the dung and the crap in our lives and uses it always in some way to bring about his glory and our good. God doesn't treat us in this way that I treated my daughter. As Dane Ortland says, he doesn't treat us like a little boy treats a slug, like we're gross. When we are in the crap, when we are in the dung, when we are in the messes of our lives, even if we've created them, God steps in and he steps toward us. He doesn't run away from us grossed out. This story actually gives me tremendous hope that God brings glory from ashes, beauty from messes, that God shows his grace time and time again to his children. And he shows that in the midst of a story that literally has crap through it, that God is doing something to deliver them because God delivers by deeds, death, and declaration. You know that God sees the crap, the dung that we're in, and hates it, including the sin, just as much as we do. He sees the power that sin has over our lives. God hates that. But unlike, unlike Ehud, God sends a different deliverer who won't trick people or use deceit for his advantage. God sends a different deliverer because the truth is we don't need a left-handed man. We need a nail-scarred hand man, and that's what God sends. He sends Christ to deliver. Think about it. Christ moved in among us. Christ moved in amongst the dung of creation. He sees the mess that humanity is in, and he doesn't distance himself. Where is Allah? Where are some of the other gods? Look, at, and this story points out to idols twice. They have dead idols that are statues that cannot move. Our God moves, he breathes, he takes on flesh and blood, and he steps in to the mess that creation has made and says, I'm going to do something with it. Think about that. You might boast about who you grew up next to. Some of these people were like, I grew up next to God. He lived down the road and played freeze tag with him. Like God lived amongst creation. Do you know what God did when he showed up in, this, in flesh and blood in, in, in and through the son, Jesus Christ? Always, always was moving towards the dumb. The woman who was bleeding the prostitute, the adulterer, the leper. Jesus could have said, whoa, 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 stop right there. I got it from way back here. But that's not what he did. He moved in, he moved towards, he got his hands dirty. He touched them, he healed them, he cleansed them. God lived among the dung. That's what he did. All the crappy messes, all the situations in life that the apostles found themselves in, that creation had found themselves in, God showed that he was there to do something about it. And so he did. He lived a life of every righteous deed. You see, Ehud could deliver the people from Eglon, but that delivery would not change what's inside of them. It wouldn't give them the permanent change and transformation they need. It would only deliver them from one king for a limited time, and then they would do the same thing again. A different deliverer had to come. One who would live with every righteous deed. That's what Christ did. He stepped in among the dung and every deed that he had was completely righteous and perfect. That's why we're saved by deeds, not ours, ever, his. I, I asked a guy in my office this week, I said, do you understand that God loves you? Yes, based upon what? And what we were doing is narrowing it down to this. I said, if you left my office and drove 
across the street and you're trying to get across and there was an elderly woman out there and she was going so slow across the sidewalk. I said, would God change his mind on you if you helped her across the sidewalk or if you chose to push her out of the way and get going faster? And he was like, I, I think not, you know? I was like, no, which sounds crazy, but here, here it is. God doesn't love us based upon our deeds, our actions, our works. God loves us based upon the deeds and actions and works of the man who lived 2,000 years ago in our place. His love does not rise and fall with our obedience or disobedience. His love does not rise and fall with our deeds and our actions. His love is tethered, anchored, and secure to what was done in the life of Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago. We're saved by deeds. We're delivered by deeds, just not ours, ever. Always Jesus's. The place that God looks is not to our deeds, but to the deeds of Jesus Christ. That's what I want my daughters to know. That's what I want a church to know. That's what I want people to know. But we're also saved by death. Here, they are saved by Eglon's death. He took the power away. He cut the head off the serpent. We are saved by the death of Christ. Christ did not take the sword to another king. Christ took the sword and bore it himself. We're saved by the death of Jesus Christ. That should have been our death. It should have been us there. We're also saved by the declaration he declared from the cross. He said, it is finished. We're, we're, we're saved by an empty tomb, which is also a declaration of him saying, everything I said and did, all my deeds, all my death, that saves you. Every moment of every day, God chooses to love us, not based upon our deeds, but based upon his deeds and his death that we should have borne. And in case we don't see that our Bibles are drenched with the gospel, page in and page out, chapter in and chapter out, that if you wrung it out, it would drip and bleed, as Spurgeon says, with the blood of Christ. Look here with me to this last section in 26 through 30. I love this. We're going to geek out for a minute. Why? Because I'm only here for a couple weeks, and it might go a little long. You guys can deal with it. Look at verse 27. When he arrived, talking about Ehud, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. Then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. Trumpets are used in, in, in different ways throughout Scripture. This is what I, I think our Bibles are fascinating. I think this is, this is so cool. Trumpets are used on the Day of Atonement. So on the seventh month, there will be what's called the Feast of Trumpets. And, and what, what, what that trumpet is doing when it's blown, it, it, it's a signal for the month. It's the first day of the month. The trumpet is blown for the day of atonement. When Jesus went to the cross, he was and is the atonement that's paid for us. The other time that the trumpet is blown, which we're going to look at in the text because this one's important, is in Exodus 19, 10 through 15. Look at this with me. <clears throat> it says this. The Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments. And be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around saying, take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, 
but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. Look up here, it's hard for me to read. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. Okay, I didn't know it ended there. All right. The sound of the trumpet is used here. You know what's going on in Exodus 19? The Mosaic covenant. God, God is getting ready to give them the covenant, the Mosaic covenant of the law, the Ten Commandments. And so there's a trumpet being blown and, and, and God's saying, watch for the third day, watch for the third day when, whenever the trumpet's blown. At that point, you can go up to the mountain. The people are like, we don't want to go up to the mountain. Why? Because the people knew that they had not fulfilled the Ten Commandments. They knew that they were going to enter into the presence of a holy God and they were not holy. What else symbolizes the third day in Christianity? When Jesus walks out of the tomb, that in a sense is a trumpet being blown saying, yes, you did not fulfill the law. You did not fulfill the Ten Commandments, but guess what? Every one of them I did, and I've given that identity to you. We also see the trumpet being blown on the year of Jubilee. The 50th year is a year of Jubilee, which means for the Jewish people is a year of rest. What it also meant is this, is that any indentured servant that year actually got their freedom back. So you would become an indentured servant because you had a debt you couldn't pay. You would become a slave to that and you would have to work for it. On the year of Jubilee, you were completely released from it. It was a year of rest. What this means when the trumpet blows that signals the year of Jubilee is that all debt and all payment has been made. You can rest, you can have joy, you can have peace. And when Christ walked out of the tomb, that's what that symbolizes. We can have joy, we can have rest, we can have peace. Because his covenant, the covenant of the new blood of his works has made us right with God. And let me end with this. That we can get off the toilet and into the trenches. And here's what I mean. I know that's brash and it's purposeful. So just hear me out. You know that Christ, being being the perfect leader, said, follow me. But whoever would follow me must take up his cross how much? How much should he deny himself? Does anyone know? Daily. In other words, what it is to get off the toilet into the trenches, what it is to know is this, that we've been saved by deeds, by death, and by the declaration. What we are called to do as Christians, please pay attention, is die every day. And by dying to yourself and to your selfishness, you actually live unto Christ. Your question when you hit the floor in the morning or it could be this, Jesus, thank you for your deeds, your death, your declaration. Help me to die today. That should be our prayer. Help me to show me how I can die to myself today. That should be every Christian's prayer. Can you give me an opportunity to die? If you're single, if you're ever asking the question, how is my community providing feelings that I want to feel? How's my gospel community doing this for me? How is this doing this for me? I'm telling you, as, as a single, I'll talk to the married people in a second. You're setting yourself up for failure in marriage. What you should be saying is, how can I die to myself? Not, this is what I deserve. This is what should be done for me. This is my past experience. This is this. It's, how can I die? How can I die to my wants, my desires, and all that stuff to make these people, my family, flourish? When you bring that into marriage, what you're bringing is this, not a selfishness of what can this marriage give me and do for me. I don't know why I'm doing this. But it actually brings a humble heart in that says, I'm ready to die. 
That's a marriage that's going to flourish. Husbands and wives, what can you do daily? You can do this. You can say, how can I die? Is, is, is this an argument that I can put to death? And, and, and by dying to this, myself is just a, what I want, that I'm actually going to live more freely and fully into Christ? Like, if, if, if I make a war over the dishes, if I make a war over this or war over this, is that something I can just die to? Selflessly serve my spouse in and actually live more freely and fully and have more joy in my life. Die. That's what we're called to do. Die. As, as, as Christ died for us, so we are called to die for other people. Go to your gospel community leaders and say, I'm ready to get off the toilet and in the trenches. I don't care if you say that. How can I help you? How can I help the church? How can I get in the trenches? We've had people throughout the years that have come and they've dropped air bombs on the elders. And we're like, we don't, we don't know what to do with this person. You don't want to know why? Because they're not in the trenches. You don't really have a ton of respect for people in war that aren't in the trenches with you. But when you're in the trenches and you feel that bond, you're like, yeah, let's do this. I want to see more Christians come to serve, come to die. I mean, there's many ways you can serve the church. That's one of the ways you can die. There's many ways you can get involved. That's a way you can die. Next, we follow, number two, we follow Christ in the messes, into the crap of other people's lives. We don't distance ourselves from broken people. We emerge ourselves into the brokenness. That's hard. It's painful. But it's actually a picture of what Christ has done. That's another way we can get off the toilet and in the trenches. It's by getting into the messes of others, not running from them. Three, we can follow the leaders Christ has set before us. Hebrews 13, 7. We can follow the leaders. I'll be honest. I would rather have just like 12 faithful men and women that are like, let's do this, than a bunch of people that are half-hearted, half-eager, half-committed, show up to church half the time, their gospel communities half the time. I want people that are like, let's do this. Like our city is broken. The Pacific Northwest is broken. We cannot afford to have Christianity just sitting on toilets when there's broken people in our city that are devastated by the sin and the crap and the dung in their lives. They need to know that God stepped in to provide a plan of rescue and deliverance through his deeds and through his death. That's why at the fourth one is our job as Christians is to declare the good news, to declare it, to live missionally, we're not called to distance ourselves from non-Christians. We are called to have relationships with non-Christians. We are called to live missionally. We are called to get invested into people's lives. The reason we're sitting here as Christians, if you are, is because someone declared the good news to you. And our job is to now go and declare it to other people. Christians need to live life on mission, missionally, which means this, build relationships with those outside the church. If you're in a holy huddle of Christians, my encouragement to you right now is look outside of that. Get out, get some friends that don't know Jesus. Let's pray. God, I thank you that every moment of every day, I don't have to worry about your emotions for me rising and falling based upon my behavior. I praise you for those sitting in here today, God, that you are proud and take delight in your sons and daughters that you see not our deeds, but the deeds of your son. You see the death of Christ that we should have borne, And you also see the declaration that it is finished, God. Thank you for an empty tomb. Thank you for a fulfilled covenant. Thank you for the promise of your spirit that has sealed us and empowered us to live a holy life. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>